This episode is brought to you in part by Wholehearted Love, a new book by Caleb and Stephanie Rouse. Overcome the barriers that hold you back in your relationships with God and with others and delight in feeling safe, seen, and loved with Wholehearted Love. For more information, go to Tyndale.com. Hey friends, welcome to the Grace Enough podcast. I am your host, Amber Cullum. Each episode, I sit down with a guest to discuss their life journey and how the grace of God has impacted them along the way. After listening to today's episode, I hope you are encouraged that God can use you right now in the midst of your day-to-day life. Yes, it requires daily surrender and trust, but we must remember His grace is enough. Welcome to episode 54. Before continuing, I want to advise those listening that today's conversation is a sensitive topic that I believe you need to discuss with your children. With that said, I would not advise listening to this episode with children until you have screened it first. Today's guest is Nick Stumbo. Nick is the Executive Director of Pure Desire. Pure Desire exists to provide hope and freedom from sexual addiction. How do they go about accomplishing that, you may ask? Well, by the end of this episode, you will have the answer to that question. Nick shares his story, and we go on to chat about what sexual addiction entails, first steps for someone struggling with pornography, why regular conversations about sex continue to be taboo in our churches, and how to create a safe space for the person struggling to open up. Listen to what Nick has to say about talking about sexual sin among Christians. So uh, men and women get into ministry, and we assume that because they're mature spiritually, they must be mature in their sexuality. Only no one has trained them any more than any of the rest of us. And so we'll ask at our conferences, we'll say, how many of you grew up in a home that talked openly about sexual matters in a positive manner? And it'll routinely be one or two hands in a room of hundreds of people. So I think the home is hoping the church is talking about it. The church is hoping the home is talking about it, but really no one is. And so it really keeps us all isolated in feeling like I am I must be the only one here. Because the crazy thing is, we can hear those stats, but we still think that, well, that must be somewhere else. And we look around our church and it looks like, man, these seem like people who have it together. I've heard them pray. I've heard them talk about their families. They don't struggle. So what's wrong with me? And I really honestly believe this is one of Satan's master strategies, that he wants to inflict everyone with the same disease and yet somehow convince them that their unique version of it makes them uniquely bad. So, so we don't talk about it because there is there's shame around it. There's, there's always, I have found this, there's always a particular piece of someone's story that does feel, for whatever reason, shameful or dirty or worse than others. And I think that's the little barb that the enemy uses and says, well, you know you've struggled with this, though. And if you brought this part up, you would be rejected. After listening to today's episode, I hope you are more educated about sexual addiction and willing to reach out to Pure Desire Ministry if you are struggling or are the spouse of someone struggling with any form of sexual addiction. Good afternoon, Nick. Thank you so much for being on the Grace Enough podcast today. Yeah, glad to be a part of it. Thanks for the invite. Absolutely. Well, as we get started, if you'll take a minute and introduce our listeners to yourself, your family, and tell everybody a little bit about what you do. Yeah, uh, my wife and I live in Gresham, Oregon, which is just an eastern suburb of Portland. Uh, We've been here about three years, and prior to that, I was a pastor for 15 years, just about an hour north of here in southwest Washington. Uh, We have four kids, two girls and two boys in age from 15 down to seven, 
my wife's a full-time grade school teacher, and I am the executive director at Pure Desire Ministries, uh, a ministry that was founded by Dr. Ted Roberts. He wrote the book Pure Desire in the late 90s, and then the ministry became its own nonprofit um, only about 11 years ago. And now uh, Ted and Diane are both in their mid-70s and have transitioned out of the leadership role and handed it off to me and our team. And and so they're still a part of what we do, but we're trying to take the message of hope and healing that really they began and take it to so many more people because of just the great need that's in our world. Well, and that's what we're going to talk about today is the ministry of Pure Desire. And so as we really get into that, will you share a little bit of your story with us, just how you came to know Jesus and really what led you to working at Pure Desire? Yeah, for sure. I, I joke with people that this is not the kind of job that any you know six-year-old kid in their driveway right. shooting hoops thinks, you know, someday I'm going to grow up and manage a pure desire sex addiction recovery ministry. Uh, it's it's no one's dream. And I, I think you'll find, though, in this ministry, it's it's become personal. It's become our story for so many of us. And so by God's leading and direction in our lives, this is what we end up doing. Um, so yeah, for me, I grew up in a Christian home. Had a, my dad was a pastor, so actually I became a third generation pastor. His dad was a pastor. Uh, we lived in rural Wyoming, and kind of the if the church is open, the pastor's family is there. So twice on Sunday and once on Wednesday, and um, really most of that was very healthy and positive because I saw the value of that culture, the strength of family, of good values. You know, spending summers at summer camp and family reunions and family camps, and it just it was the world I grew up in, and, and so I gave my life to Christ at a very young age, where you feel like this is just what we do. It's who right. we are. We love, we love Jesus, and we serve him. And as I grew, there's obvious challenges to that, although I would, I would say I never went through really any stage of rebellion, because I, I always knew Jesus was real and, and the only way to salvation, and so felt a call into ministry probably in my junior, senior year of high school, and went through Bible college, seminary, all of that. But the other thing that you know was occurring in my life that occurs for so many men and women is that at a young age, before I really knew what to do with it, I was introduced to sexual content. And at the time, it was at a friend's house at about ten or eleven years old, where his parents were watching an inappropriate movie—not you know, not a, a porn film, but definitely something more mature than I had ever viewed—and and sex acts taking place that were foreign to me and. My little brain responded to it the way God has designed our brain to react to that, which is a sense of curiosity, of intrigue, of drawing, um, even maybe to some level a bonding to what you're seeing of I'm, I'm wanting to see more. And yet at the same time, this repulsion of this is wrong. Um, I can't tell my mom and dad. I, I, I don't know what I'm doing. And so because of that, sex comes into your life or came into my life in a way that was both secretive and shameful. Mm. And that really became the paradigm for me growing up is, you know, sex is something taboo. And I think that was in our home, like most Christian families, you just yeah. didn't talk about sex. Yes, my dad had the birds and bees talk with me at about 10, 11 years old. And that was both awkward and amazing all at the same time. Um, it was a good conversation to have, but I legitimately don't think my parents and I talked about sex ever again. And so <clears throat> you're left to try to figure that out on your own. Well, the one thing the church did give me was that if something is, you know, a besetting sin in your life, that's what we used to call it. But if you have a besetting sin, the way you deal with it is you confess. James chapter five, you know, mm -hmm. confess your sins one to another and you will be healed. And it, it wasn't something I wanted in my life. I wanted to be done with it. And so I believed if I would just confess, I could be free. And I remember the first time I confessed to my junior high youth pastor after, after everyone else had left. And I 
poured out my heart about these things I had seen and how I'd gotten into a pattern of self-stimulation. And it was just like, okay, I got it on the table and, and they were very gracious and affirming, you know, you're not alone. Many people struggle, prayed for me and, you know, kind of sent me out the door thinking I'm all better. I confessed it. And, and probably for a few weeks I was, I don't even remember at the time how long it lasted, but inevitably the behavior came back. And so I got into this binge purge relationship with pornography and masturbation that continued through my teenage years, young adulthood, and into marriage. And I continued in that binge purge cycle to confess because I thought that was the route to freedom. I confessed to my dorm floor you know, advisor in college, the dean of student life, my first mentor, my first senior pastor, my first elder board, um, and even to my fiance as we were engaged, just believing if I would confess well enough, I'd be free. And yet I would continue to struggle. I'm thankful that God put a lot of people in my life that were gracious and affirming and, you know, prayed for God's power and delivery. And yet no one really knew what freedom and hope and lasting transformation looked like. And so you go away thinking, okay, this time I'm going to try really hard not to go back there, but because nothing on the inside has really changed, it comes back. And only when it does, there's this double bind of, now people know that I struggle because I confessed it to them, but they don't know I'm still struggling. Mm-hmm. And so the double shame that we feel now of what we've done, but what people don't know, really becomes a prison that we can live in. And so my wife and I got married early 20s. We went into ministry at a church. Um, and I would say we had a great marriage, relationally, physically, spiritually, like doing all the good stuff that people taught us to do. And yet this pattern continued because as, as I find and so many guys do, it's really not about sex. And so having sex, even in a godly marriage, doesn't fix the issue because it's being driven by much deeper things that uh, at the time I was completely blind to. Uh, So at about the age of 26, I became a senior pastor. Um, My senior pastor at the time had moved overseas and the church felt like we were the right people to take it on. And uh, by God's grace, we took that step. But what that meant is the only safe person in my life to confess to then was my wife. Because I felt like everywhere else, I needed to be the guy. I needed to have the answers and come across as the spiritual leader that people, you know, quote unquote, needed me to be. Um, And so because she already knew about my struggle and I had convinced myself that it wasn't about her, um, I continued to confess to her when it felt safe and appropriate. Mm -hmm. But what I, I didn't see is how this pattern over time in our marriage was really eroding her sense of trust in me. Yeah. Um, her sense of worth. And about 10 years into our marriage and five years into being the lead pastor, she began to express to me that the level of pain was so great, she was ready to leave. Wow. I remember her saying was, it's, it's not that I hate you, but I hate the way this makes me feel. Mm-hmm. And because I don't know if it's ever going to change because it just keeps happening, I don't know if I can stay. And so to, to kind of summarize our story, because of that moment of real pain and, and a wake-up call, Uh, By God's grace, he used that to direct us into Pure Desire Ministries, where we went through a year of being in groups, both for myself as the one who struggled and for her as the betrayed spouse, and also a year of counseling. That was really the first time in my life I sat down with someone who knew the Bible and also understood the human brain and addiction and how all of that didn't have to be um, contradictory, how all of that actually fit together and began to help me understand the deeper patterns that were happening what was going on that continued to take me back to a place I didn't want to go to. And it resulted in some really incredible transformation, um, not only in my life and in my behaviors, but in our marriage, in our relationship, and in my whole family. And so from that, we, we shared our story eventually with our church. Uh, on a Sunday morning, I got up and shared about 
this journey in our lives. And I apologized to my church for failing in this area as a leader. I asked for their forgiveness. And then I asked for their help to start a ministry for men and women who had similar struggles. And almost overnight, we saw groups for men and women launch in our church that over the next five years or so really became the lifeblood of our congregation as husbands and wives were finding healing and freedom. Um, I tell people all the time, this was never our plan, but it became by far the best discipleship program we ever had. Wow. Because rather than just teaching people kind of surfacey stuff about reading the Bible and praying, and, and I don't mean that those things are inconsequential or unimportant, I just mean they don't always touch what's going on deep in our heart and in our core beliefs. So when we got people into these groups that were really getting into the deep stuff, it was transforming their lives too. And it, it just led to so much growth uh, as a church. And that because of that, I wrote a book called Setting Us Free, which tells our story and our church's journey and processes where I see all that in scripture. And, and that kept us connected to Pure Desire, um, where eventually we started speaking occasionally at their events. And then three years ago, they asked if I'd come on as the executive director. So it's it's God's journey in our lives that caused us to step out of a church that we loved yeah. and where all of our friends were and where all of our kids had been born and just say, we feel like God is calling us to this ministry because we know that there are so many men and women that are still trapped in the same place I was of fighting with everything they know how to, to get free. And yet finding they're not really any more free, maybe after 10, 20 or yep. 30 years of fighting than they were when they started. And so um, it's exciting to be a part of a ministry that really is helping people find the same kind of lasting freedom and change that we discovered as a couple. And so I don't know if that was a, a short story, but that's kind of the overview of how did I end up at Pure Desire and um, doing a ministry like this to help others. To hear your story, because I feel like what I read and even now hearing you say the binge purge is this concept I hadn't really thought about um, describing when it came to pornography or masturbation or sex addiction, whatever term you want to use. And you see that a lot. And in the church, I do feel like people are starting to talk about it more, but it's still, there's so much shame around it. And like you said, people don't know what to do. They're just like, well, if you pray more, it's going to get better. Yeah. I think that's a, a challenge we face is that it does feel like people are making a moral choice. And, and they are. I, I don't want to in any way suggest that because we understand the addictive nature of it, because we start to see what happens in the brain, that doesn't in any way excuse us from responsibility. Uh, right. That doesn't mean we can blame it on someone else. That Not at all. But it's just trying to help believers see that there's more going on than just try harder and believe more. Mm -hmm. Because the way, the way I kind of describe it is the illustration of an iceberg that if you look at our human behaviors, it's like an iceberg that the behaviors are only what you see above the water. So but what's driving our behaviors below the water is our thoughts and our feelings. And even deeper than our thoughts and our feelings are our core beliefs. Mm -hmm. And so what happens in the church, we just see someone's behaviors and we say, stop that. Don't do that anymore. Read your Bible and pray and don't make that decision. Mm -hmm. But if we don't help them see the thoughts and feelings that are driving it, and even deeper, the core beliefs that that in our family of origin or trauma that we've gone through or places we've been wounded. And, and let's be honest, all of us in one way or another have experienced woundedness in a fallen world. I mean, no one grew Absolutely. up in a perfect home. So we all have these core beliefs about our value, our identity, our worthlessness. And even if we know, you know, in our heads, we know those things aren't true in Christ. There's a part in our soul that because of those experiences might be listening to this idea that says I'm worthless 
or I'm not good enough, or I don't measure up, or I'm not beautiful, I'm not accepted, I'm not wanted. And if in our old nature, that's a core belief that's driving us, Mm -hmm. it's going to lead to negative thoughts and emotions that are going to lead to negative behaviors. Mm -hmm. And if all we try to do is stop the behavior, we're ignoring the majority of the iceberg that's driving it. And so I, I really do feel like that's a big part of Pure Desire's mission is just to equip and educate the church to say, when when we tell someone to make a better decision, but don't give them a pathway or a plan to actually address what's driving it, we actually only heap more shame on them because they do try harder. In my experience, the vast majority of men and women that struggle don't want to. And if they knew how to stop, they would. Mm -hmm. And, And when they make their choices, is it their responsibility? Yes. And do they make poor choices? Yes, we could make better choices. But if we can't see the whole host of other things that contribute to it, our, our possibility of changing long term is going to be really, really, yeah. really limited. Yeah. And I mean, we see that to be true in any type of addiction that you deal with, not just, you know, sexual addiction. And I know from a few friends who've actually been through um, the Pure Desire program that, yes, that the story that you basically told of your life is pretty much their story as well. And so tell everyone just so people know what we're talking about because this term sexual addiction has become something that's much more of a I don't want to maybe I shouldn't say a buzzword but it kind of has become much more popular what is that exactly and what all does it entail yeah well and like I said I I think we want to be clear to say when we use the word addiction we're not trying to excuse someone's behavior we're not trying to blame someone else I would say in a in a lot of circles, there is kind of a disease mentality of addiction and the idea that if I have an addiction, I have a disease. And so let's treat the disease if it's not really my fault. I don't subscribe to that. When I talk about sexual addiction, what I would describe it as in the most simple of terms is to say there is a craving that we have that we make choices. But over time, those choices begin to make us. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and here's the the way that really I was confronted with the word addiction for the first time Um, when we were offered the opportunity to begin working with pure desire. I really didn't think I needed that much help. I was like, yeah, it happens once in a while. I just need a couple of tips or tools and I'll be okay. Mm -hmm. And so the first step was to meet with a mentor in our district, which was a friend of mine, someone that I really respected. And I went and met with this friend named Morris and I, I spent the better part of an hour telling Morris why I didn't need the Ted program. (laughs) That's what I called it initially, Ted Roberts. It was his TED program. I just, I just needed some, some tips. And Morris said, well, let me ask you three questions. He said, number one, how long has this been a problem? And I said, well, about 15 years by this point, you know, early teen years. And at the time, I was right about 30. And so it's been a decade and a half. He said, okay, second question, how many times have you tried to stop? And I actually laughed a little bit. I said, well, every time's been the last time. And I've meant it. Like, that'll never happen again. I promise that's it said, so if I'm honest, I've tried to stop hundreds, if not thousands of times unsuccessfully. And he says, okay, and third question, is it causing you or people you love significant amounts of pain? Mm -hmm. Um, And that's when it got serious because I knew if I didn't change, my wife was going to leave me. And I I told him that. I said, I'm afraid my wife will leave me if this keeps happening. And he said, okay, Nick, let's put those three things together. It's been a problem for a long time. You've tried to change repeatedly without success, even though it's causing you or people you love significant pain. Mm. And I said, yeah, that's a pretty good summary of my life. <laughs> and he said, and he, he leaned towards me and in very you know, sincere, but in love, he said, Nick, that's the clinical definition of addiction. Oh, and I, yeah. I remember I, I sat back like he had just punched me because it felt 
it's like, well, I'm, you know, I'm a pastor and, and I, I preach the word of God and I believe it. And, and in my mind, addiction was a category that a Christ follower couldn't be in. Mm. But when he brought it up that way, and I began to understand that I could both love Jesus with my whole heart as well as I knew how to, and be struggling with a behavior that had become addictive in my life, that was actually a freeing concept. Because I, And I think for a lot of us, we do put it as either or. Well, either you love Jesus or you're an addict. And it's like, no, what if both of those things can be true? Mm-hmm. So just because someone has struggled, does that make everyone an addict? No, but I would should suggest that more people have become addicted to this than we would expect, partly because the chemicals involved with acting out sexually are as powerful as cocaine. Yeah. Only the problem is the dealer is in our own brain. You know, you don't have to find some shady corner of town to get your hit. It's right there with you anywhere, anytime. And when you look at the actual brain chemistry of what's going on and you could see, is it possible that that this choice is now starting to choose me because of how I've given into it. And again, I'm still responsible, but there's more to it than just trying harder to stop. So I, mm. I think if we could define addiction that way, something that's been a problem in your life that you've tried to stop without success, even though it's causing you or people you love pain, a lot of people could raise their hand and say, well, that defines me. And if we can embrace that idea that addiction isn't a category, addiction is just a defining a, a trait or a characteristic of what's going on in our life, then maybe we can bring the seriousness we need to actually change the behavior. Because if, if we just think it's a bad choice I'm making, then I go and just keep trying harder not to make that choice. That's right. If I'm willing to admit it's become addictive in my life, then I can see there's probably some deeper work that I'm going to need to do to get free of this. Yeah. Yeah. That really helps me even just to think about it in that way. Well, I am going to share some statistics that you guys have on your website, just because I know there's several people listening who really don't realize just how significant pornography, sexual addiction, all of it is primarily, I mean, in the church is what we're talking about, but there's a few different statistics here. 33% of all Americans seek out porn at least once a month. 68% of Christian men struggle with unwanted sexual behavior. 25% of Christian women struggle with sexual dependency issues. 57% of pastors admit to struggling with pornography. And 30% of pastors report they have had an affair or a sexual encounter with a parishioner. So with all of these statistics, why do you think porn, masturbation, and sex is still so taboo in our churches that we just don't want to talk about it? Yeah, that, I mean, that's a really great question because I think the stats, whatever research you look at is really becoming undeniable. Absolutely. The magnitude of the problem. And yet I think the truth is the, the parents and the home have not been equipped how to talk about sex. Um, and so neither have the pastors or the leaders. You know, I, I tell people all the time, I did over eight years of Bible college and seminary. And in those eight years, I can remember one 15-minute conversation about our personal sexuality in, in all of those years. Wow. Now, yeah, there were some opportunities peripherally at Bible college and groups that got involved in, but even those were just student-led. So uh, men and women get into ministry, and we assume that the, because they're mature spiritually, they must be mature in their sexuality. Mm-hmm. Only no one has trained them any more than any of the rest of us. And so we'll ask at our conferences, we'll say, how many of you grew up in a home that talked openly about sexual matters in a positive manner? 
and it'll routinely be one or two hands in a room of hundreds of people. So I think the home is hoping the church is talking about it. Yeah. The church is hoping the home is talking about it, but really no one is. And so it really keeps us all isolated in feeling like I'm, I must be the only one here. Because the crazy thing is we can hear those stats, but we still think that, well, that must be somewhere else. Right. That's not me. And look, right. And we look around our church and it looks like, man, these seem like people who have it together. I've heard them pray. I've heard them talk about their families they don't struggle. So what's wrong with me? And I really honestly believe this is one of Satan's master strategies, that he wants to inflict everyone with the same disease and yet somehow convince them that their unique version of it makes them uniquely bad. Hmm. So, so we don't talk about it because there is there's shame around it. There's, there's always, I have found this, there's always a particular piece of someone's story that does feel for whatever reason, shameful or dirty or worse than others. And I think that's the little barb that the enemy uses and says, well, you know, you've struggled with this though. And if you brought this part up, you would be rejected. And so we don't talk and the person next to us doesn't talk. And there's a culture of silence instead of a culture of vulnerability and openness. And I, I really think that's one of the things we try to work so much with churches and families is to say, if, if you want to have a healthy home, because that's driving a lot of people to say, what about my kids? You know, they're worried about cell phones and tablets and accessibility. Yes. <laughs> like, how do we get healthy kids? And, and in a gentle yet loving way, we try to turn the question to say, well, how healthy are you? Because you're not going to take your kids to a place you haven't been to. That there's not some magical training you can give your kids if you're not also learning to be open and vulnerable. And that doesn't mean you, you've got to be open with your kids about things you haven't told other people. But that means the best thing that parents can do for their kids is to deal with their negative sexual history, because as they deal with their brokenness, they become equipped to turn and start having conversations with their kids, not out of shame and regret and awkwardness, because let's be honest, most families that do have the sex talk, it's this weird one time in a lifetime, maybe a weekend thing that, you know, dad is nervous or mom's sweating and not sure what to say. And it's. It only reinforces that sex is uncomfortable and weird and different versus if, if I'm okay with my sexual history and being able to talk about it and express where did I go wrong? Where did I make bad choices? Where did I meet God? How did he help me? Then I can normalize the conversation. Yeah. And, and I'm, that doesn't mean I'm normalizing the behavior, but I make it safe for my kids to say, Hey dad, what about this? Mm. Why did this happen? And, and I didn't ever, bring those things up with my mom and dad. Now, did they ever say, don't talk about that? No, but there's something inherent in, in, in us that I think feels like, I don't know if this is safe to talk about. Right. So unless we have a parent or a leader in our home who's saying, hey, this is a safe place to be real, we're not going to bring it up. And I, I think that's really where the change has to happen in the church is families that are okay with talking about it in the home, because then that becomes part of church culture and um, and all of us can begin to experience some new freedom together. Yeah. I mean, hearing you talk about that with home and families, I have a nine-year-old. And when we first started talking to him about sex and what that is, so many of my friends were like, already? And I'm like, yeah, I mean, the statistic is that they're going to get exposed for the first time by nine years old. Yeah. And so yeah, we've had these conversations and then, you know, other things happen. Like my son would start asking, well, why was the door closed mom and dad? And you know, my small group people would be like, Oh my gosh, what did you say? And I'm like, 
I said exactly what was happening. I mean, there's no reason for my kids to feel like mommy and daddy aren't involved intimately while they're around. And it just makes people so uncomfortable. But because of some past experiences in my own life, the lack of conversation when I was growing up, I just have said, I refuse to act like this is something that doesn't go on in our home. It's good. And I want you to know the difference between good, healthy, and, you know, bad choices and unhealthy. Yeah. Yeah. The way I encourage parents and people to think about it is that someone will create the framework for sexuality in your kid's life. And if you want to wait until they're exposed to then start having conversations, you're basically saying, I'd rather let media or movies or the world create the framework, and then I'll try to help them understand it. And I say, no, that's totally backwards. Right. That our kids, and, and we even encourage as, as young as first grade, because once you're in grade school, the things you're going to hear a fifth grader talk about, I mean, who knows, and it's younger and younger, that in age-appropriate ways to start to have comfortable, normal conversations about their body, body parts, and use the actual words and talk about the functions and not act like it's the strain. And we're talking about God's creation of our body. He made it that way. So not to be shy, but just create this language of we talk about this. So that then when our kids go to school and maybe someone mentions the word masturbation or pornography, they're like, oh, I remember mom and dad talking about this. Totally don't remember what it was. I mean, because that's the truth at six, seven, eight years old. Remember, they don't have shame or this awkwardness about it. They're just curious, like, what is that? And so if they feel safety to come home and say, hey, this came up at school or a friend said something, what is this? Not out of shame, not out of secrecy, just knowing that mom and dad are safe. Then we get to help keep building that framework because we've helped start the foundation. So I think if if you're a parent of kids, um, you know, who are already in their teenage years, they're maybe freaking out right now, like, oh, my gosh, I've I've blown it. It's too late. Right. Uh, the other thing I use is the story, uh, the old illustration of what's the best time to plant a tree when the answer is 50 years ago. But what's the second best time to plant a tree? And the answer is today. That's right. So if you didn't do it five, 10 years ago and you wish you would have start soon, yeah. you know, look at how do I just open that door? Because if you're the leader in your home, they're taking their cues from you. And just mm-hmm. to start having conversations to say, hey, this is a reality of our world. How are you doing? Because yep. I want you to know it's okay for us to talk about. And if you've never had that conversation, you're going to feel nervous at first. Mm-hmm. But if you can just take a deep breath and say, this is okay. I want to make this a normal conversation. I think your kids will learn a lot from that. And it'll open some really good doors of, of ongoing conversation. Mm, absolutely. If somebody is struggling with sexual addiction right now, what is the first step that you take to freedom? I think the maybe where I'd start with that is to say the first step not to take, because what so many people feel is, okay, I, I got to go to my spouse and just unload. And I describe that as a type of emotional vomiting uh, that I, I get the mess out. And you know what? I feel so much better. But you know what? They feel horrible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and there's a mess that, that is left to clean up. Uh, what I would encourage that person is you are not yet ready to go to your spouse in a fair, completely honest, open way and begin to share that. Now, that that step does need to happen eventually, but that's not step one. Step one would be to go to a friend or a pastor that you trust to have a spiritual foundation and and to open up this part of your life and say, I, I've, I've not been very honest and I need help. And would you just listen and help me understand where to go next? 
and hopefully that person can direct you towards some next steps. You know, what, at Pure Desire, the thing that we're so passionate about is believing that healing has, happens best in community. Yeah. Um, what, what I talked about in our healing journey, it wasn't just the counseling. It was going to a group of other men and for my wife, other women that were going through a similar journey and beginning to tell the whole story of my life. And honestly, I had never had that where I could go and just talk about everything that had happened to me, things I had done and hear other men do the same and understand where it was coming from. And so that's really a second step that you're going to need a group to process with. Mm -hmm. If you're struggling with sexual addiction, you're going to have to have an intentional plan. And the other thing I would say, it's not just an accountability group, because that's one of the things I think the church has really gotten backwards is we create accountability, which really just becomes a glorified performance group where we, we show up every week and say, well, did you mess up this week? No. Did you? No. Did you? Well, yeah, I messed up. So we pray for Larry because he messed up and mm. we tell Larry, hope you have a better week. See you next week. But if we're not really working on a process of change or understanding where it comes from, we're, gonna, we're just going to stay in that same pattern. So finding a group that's actually walking through some material, and that's what Pure Desire provides is curriculum. Yeah. We have over 750 churches that are using our group material for men, for women, and whether they're the betrayed spouse or the one who's struggling, um, it's, it's to get involved in a group that's walking through an intentional process of healing and of change. Mm -hmm. it, so those are the two things I'd say. Find someone safe to start to be honest with, but then recognize your next step for healing will be to find a group to get in community. And then from there, um, depending on the level of struggle or how bad things have gotten in the home, counseling may be needed. Yeah. We find that about 30% of people in group also need the help of a counselor, a trained professional. And I would add trained specifically in the area of sexuality, because you can go to a great church counselor, marriage and family, and they might have some direction, but there really are some unique challenges to sexual addiction that I would encourage you to find someone, you know, Pure Desire has a team, but there are many people that are licensed through CSAT, sex, Certified Sexual Addiction Therapist, that really can do some good work at getting into the specifics of your story. So those three things, um, safe person, group, counseling, and as you start to get traction, that's when you're going to be equipped to actually go to your spouse and say, honey, I, I need to be open with you about the truth of my past, but look at here's the steps I'm going to be taking, and I want you to be involved in this journey with me. And I guess the last thing I'd throw into that is most people, their spouse already knows something. <laughs> so if you can start moving towards your healing, they're going to see that. And that's going to make any subsequent conversations go better. Because mm. if you're actually working on it, it's going to give them hope that something can actually change. Yeah. Well, and if someone gets on Pure Desire's website, can they, like, are there tools there that will point them to, yes, somebody's using the curriculum in your area, or there's a group going on in your area. Are those tools available on the website? Yep. If you go to uh, puredesire.org on the front page, you're going to see join a group. And if you click to join a group, there'll be two paths, either, either finding one in person. And if you type in your city and location, it'll bring up a map of any other churches or groups in your area. Or the other path is we have online groups. Uh, now, the online groups are led by certified, trained leaders, and so there is a, a cost to those groups because the leader is being compensated for their time. Mm -hmm. um, but because those happen online, you can join literally from anywhere in the world if you have a reliable internet connection right. and be involved in a group that's walking through a Pure Desire workbook. Oh, and that would be true for men and for women. That's awesome. Well, another question that a friend of mine who has 
like I said, walked through this journey, had asked is how can a woman create a safe environment for her husband to communicate his struggles? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. I I think um, it it takes a lot of courage on the part of a wife to be the one who initiates because um, I think many women do live in a sense of naivety of, oh, I'm sure he's not struggling. Um, or they'd rather just not, they're maybe afraid of what they'll find. So they don't ask the question, but I think a a wife could really help creating an environment of vulnerability and honesty by going to a husband and saying, you know, I, I don't expect you to be perfect. I don't in any area of life. I know that perfection is not a reasonable request, but I do think growth and health are reasonable to expect. And, and if, if you're struggling a lot with lust or pornography or masturbation, I know that's not only is that not healthy for our marriage, but that's not healthy for you as a person. And I, I would much rather be a part of seeing you and us get healthy than have you hiding stuff because you think I need you to be perfect. Um, and that's, that might feel like, oh, am I giving him permission to struggle? No, I, I think you're giving him permission to be honest with the expectation that as in any area of life, if we were engaged in something that was unhealthy for us in our marriage, why wouldn't we pursue growth and health and freedom? And so for a wife to say, I, I want to see you get healthy, I, I encourage you to join a group. Now, then there does come a layer where you'll probably hear from spouses on this because they'll say, well, what if my husband won't engage? Mm-hmm. What if he won't, like he doesn't think it's a problem? Well, I, I really would encourage you to reach out to our women's groups coordinator um, at Pure Desire or others on our team here because that's actually fairly common. And I think there are some steps a wife can take even then, because it is fair. Here's the thing I'd say to wives that are listening. It is fair for a wife to expect that she should be the only one for her husband. God designed her brain for exclusivity. And the one thing I'm hearing more of that I I would want to just confront is a response that says, well, as long as it's not other women, if it's just porn, then I'm just going to turn the other way. And what I find for so many women is that's actually more of a safety mechanism, that they're just going to kind of shut off caring or being engage because they don't want to be hurt. I think if they get under that response, they'll see, no, it, it does hurt and mm-hmm. I don't like it. And and so I would just affirm them to say, God, God designed your brain and your soul to want to be your husband's one and only. And it is fair for you to ask that of him. And if, if he's not willing to make you his only desire and be moving at least towards health, I, I think you need to be more realistic about what kind of relationship you can have. And mm. And to not just continue. The other thing I would say to wives, um, and my wife, if she was, was on this with me, um, would be the first to agree and say, you can't be the one that fixes your spouse. Yeah, It's, it's very kind of you to try to be more responsive sexually, to try to take care of his needs. That's very thoughtful and kind, but just be aware that's not going to fix them. Mm-hmm. In fact, in some ways that may actually play into their addiction. Now, I, I think a healthy relationship does involve a husband and wife being aware of one another's needs. Yes, and being responsive to each other. But if we get it into our mind that, well, if I'm just responsive enough sexually, I'll fix him, it's not going to happen. And if anything, you'll probably only further his sense that this is about my pleasure, getting what I want, when I want. And if he's not getting help, you're going to become part of the problem. So uh, just for wives to be aware of that, it's, it's not your responsibility to fix his problem by being available to him. So yes, women can contribute to health, by working on their relationship, on being healthy themselves. And I I don't mean like becoming physically healthy. I just mean two healthy people together are going to be the best relationship ever. And so if you're really hurting and wounded by what your husband is doing, 
the thing I always say to that spouse is start working on your health because you could, you could join a group for women who are feeling hurt and betrayed and wounded. And when you hear other women sharing their story and starting to find hope, you're going to start to get some traction for yourself and you're going to know how to start talking to your husband and what kind of things to say that to not just trigger them or make them angry, but how to express your needs, your desires for the marriage in a way that really puts the ball in their court. And I think really creates a good likelihood that they'll respond favorably and say, yes, I want that kind of marriage too. And I see the work you're doing. I'm going to do some work as well. So those are just a couple of initial thoughts in an area that, I mean, I could talk for days about. I know, right? Well, and as I hear you talking about just the addiction aspect of it and how you know, it, it can sometimes make them worse. That's where just a little bit of an understanding of neurology does come into play because the neural pathways in our brain, they are etched so deep that it takes a lot of time and undoing of those pathways to make new pathways. And that is, yeah. I mean, that's where you pray, pray, pray. It doesn't work. That isn't bad, but that's not what's going to put you on a healthy track. Yeah, the way I t say it is, um, it's it's not either or. Like either we pray or we do counseling. Yeah, it's a prayer is hand. part of prayer is part of the recovery. A healthy sex life between a husband and wife can be part of recovery, but those things alone aren't going to fix or change anyone. So it, there has to be other things that are brought in as well. Yeah, we talk a lot about how community is a great place to really deal with brokenness and hurt and pain and betrayal. But how do we actually do that in marriages? So now things have been exposed. People are on the right path. Like how do we support one another in marriage when betrayal is a part of the story? Yeah, that's a great question because I, I think there's a reality that the one who is struggling, there's some things they need to do that they can't do with their spouse. They need to get into a group with other people who struggle. They need to do some work. They may need to go to counseling. And at the same time, the betrayed spouse is going to need to work on their feelings of betrayal and learning to trust again and being in a group for them. But there is a coming together to say we also have to deal with the marriage and the relationship. And one of the most powerful things I found in, in my recovery journey for my wife and I was our need to really learn to connect emotionally and to understand what true intimacy is all about. You know, intimacy is not sex. That's one of the unfortunate things our culture has taught us, that sex equals intimacy. Uh, but it's very possible to have sex without intimacy, and it's possible to have intimacy without sex. Yes. If you are not one and the same. Intimacy is really a place of being fully known and knowing that I'm fully loved. So in my marriage, I realized I was performing even for my wife in terms of trying to be the good husband, act like things were okay. And I didn't really know how to share my deeper emotional life, the things that were irritating me at work or driving my emotions. And one of the things we began to connect around uh, was something, a, a tool we use in our groups called the FASTER scale. And the FASTER scale helps you understand it's, it's an acronym for uh, the path we take down to relapse, forgetting priorities, anxiety, speeding up, ticked off, exhausted, relapse. And mm. if you want to know more about the FASTER scale, we have a couple of podcasts at Pure Desire. Someone could listen and understand that. But the point of that story is the FASTER scale asks you several questions about why do you feel this way? What, what, what's driving it? And my, I just began to share that with my wife every week. So rather than her just waiting for me to you know, confess if I'd been relapsing or not, instead, I began to share more of my heart and my emotions. And that would open up her to share what she was thinking and feeling. And the more we grew in that, we began to understand one another's family of origin issues in ways we never had. 
we began to understand the, the wounds that we were dealing with that were driving our our current behavior, because that's the thing in marriage, isn't it? That the current thing that we're arguing about isn't really the problem. It's just what's triggered our yes. deeper emotions and pain. And, you know, so for me, a, a big issue of mine coming out of my family of origin is a feeling of being disrespected. And what I didn't see for t- the first 10 years of my marriage is how when my wife would inadvertently push that disrespect button, it would create this defensiveness in me, this powering up because I needed to, to get respect back or, or show that I was, you know, demanding respect. Right. But none of that was about her. You know, 99% of that was about my childhood and my dad and sports and, and being noticed. And well, until I was able to bring that into the conversation, it was just going to keep creating more pain and wounds in our marriage. Mm-hmm. So I think for couples, it's going back to that iceberg illustration. The, the temptation is to put all the focus on the behavior, the tip of the iceberg. But the best work you can do as a couple is let him and his group really start to face the behaviors, let you and your group start to face your behaviors. But as a couple, really start to get into those thoughts and emotions and those core beliefs. Because when you can begin to connect below the surface, so to speak, the the growth and strength that can come into your marriage is, is really remarkable. So looking, we have a couple's workbook called Connected that can help someone do that. But I would also just say, if you both engage in group, it's going to give you some language mm-hmm. to begin to grow this way together at home. Yeah, that's good stuff. I mean, for anybody, really, you know, just the communication part of it is so good just to talk and become more vulnerable w- with one another. But if I'm a 14 year old and I'm involved right now in pornography and I'm listening to this, looking down the road, let's say 15 years, what? can I expect to be going on in my thought life, in my marriage, in my work life as a result of years and years and years of pornography? Yeah. Uh, another great question that I think, you know, honestly, when I was 14, I wasn't thinking about and most 14 year olds aren't. Nope. Um, but if we could have people come into our lives and help us begin to see things, it, it might change the trajectory, honestly. So I, some of the things that I would want that 14 year old to be aware of is that God designed your brain to bond to anything you have sex with. And that, that can mean physically or mentally or in your lust. If, if we have a sexual climax in our thinking and in our behaving, our brain and our chemistry bonds to that thing. And we have these chemicals released that say, this is mine. It belongs to me. Mm. Now in a marriage, that's a really awesome thing. God actually made our brains for monogamy to bond to one person. And every time that we're engaged in sexual intimacy to reinforce that bond that says, this is mine, this belongs to me. This is what I want to connect with. And actually over time, that bond gets strengthened and other attractions fall away because they're not that thing we're bonded to. So that the challenge in pornography and in lust is our brain bonds to an image that maybe we act out to. And then the next time it bonds to something new. And now we're actually engaging in another pattern that God put into our brain that is about curiosity and um, something new and different, that things that are new and different. Here's something fascinating I learned in reading um, a book on human sexuality, that that God's mechanism for us to not inbreed in families and die out because of you know mixed DNA was to create a desire and to be attracted to something new and different so that we would marry or go outside of our family of origin. Well, I mean, you think about human creation and the scope of the world, that's pretty brilliant. Yes. But it's the very thing that sin and Satan hijack 
that now make the brain always want something new or novel or different or unique. But the, the downside of it in a fallen world, it's never enough. And so this is where we, we start to have tolerance. That's the other thing I'd want a 14-year-old to know is what excites you today won't be as exciting tomorrow. And so you'll need something a little more or a little bigger or better or different. And over time, the, the very sad story I hear from people is after a year or two of this kind of pattern, they will find themselves getting attracted to and aroused by things that a year ago would have repulsed them. And even as they're watching it, something in them is going, I can't believe I'm finding this exciting, but it's what happens when the brain doesn't have healthy bonding that it's becoming confused. And so it needs more and different to get that same level of pleasure. And over time, we head down paths we never dreamed we would go down. And so I, I think as a 14-year-old, we're just saying, oh, it's, it's just innocent. It's just curiosity. When I'm married, it'll all go away. But what you're actually doing is programming your brain for unhealth. And this, if we can see that. And, and the other thing I might say, because if, if parents who are hearing this question are saying, well, good, I'm off the hook. Hopefully my 14-year-old listens. <laughs> I would say to the parent, I don't think your 14-year-old has the capacity to really get this and live it out yeah. unless you're involved as well. And, and you're helping them if, if you're their cheerleader and you're on their side and encouraging them. Because what I think can happen for that 14-year-old is when they do mess up, they feel like, well, it's over. I, I messed up and now I'm not pure and I might as well just keep going down this road because this whole Christian virtue and be a virgin thing, I'm already messing it up. So I, I'm on plan B now. But I think for parents and youth leaders to come alongside and say, you know, if we're not doing it perfectly, let's not just think God's plan for us is over. There, there is a sense that he re restores our virtue, that, that as we get healthy, some of that same healthy brain function comes back, that, yes. that we will bond just to our spouse. So I think to recognize if it's not the end of the world if we messed up. Now, it could be very disastrous if that mess up becomes secretive and this shameful pattern that we just keep acting out of. But if, if we made a mistake, having the freedom to come to a parent and say, yeah, I kind of blew it and, and I don't really know what happened. Can you help me? That there can be change. And so as parents, we've got to be willing to engage in that. Otherwise we kind of wish our kids good luck and say, oh, I hope you figured out better than I did. And, and that's not parenting, that's abandonment. Oh. So how could you come alongside of your kids and just say, I'm here for you. You don't have to be afraid to tell me anything and whatever it is, We'll face it together. And I think if you can create that in your home, you are night, you know, you're miles ahead of what most of us experienced growing up. Yeah, well, and you've talked a lot about the programs that Pure Desire offers for people online, um, different tools for the church. But let's say that, you know, my church, let's say we didn't have the curriculum and we decided we were going to bring it in. What can one expect from that? Like, what would that look like in a church setting? Yeah. So one of the great tools that a lot of churches start with is called the Conquer Series. Uh, the Conquer Series is designed primarily for men. So that's a tool that often the men will start with. But what I love about it is you can say to all of your men, hey, it, it doesn't matter if you've ever struggled a day in your life or not. The truth is you've got brothers and sons and friends who are struggling. So let's all come and be equipped. And so the men can see it as, hey, this is for men. Because one of the, the dangers that churches have is they'll stand up and say, we've got a group for men who struggle. So if you struggle, go to this group, which is then a group that absolutely nobody wants to go to. Because yeah. either I don't want to admit that I am struggling, or if I'm willing to admit that I'm struggling, I don't want other people to know. So if you can create an environment of acceptance and just saying, in our church, it's okay to deal with this. 
That's what the Conquer series can help you do. And the Conquer series is a 10-week DVD class that basically men could watch together in a large group setting and then break into small group huddles to discuss what they're learning and what they saw and what steps they're going to take. And then at the end of those 10 weeks, you offer men the opportunity to identify if this is an area of struggle for you, we want to encourage you to take the next step. And that would be then our, our group material for men, which is called Seven Pillars of Freedom. And that's going to take men about nine to 10 months to work through. And I, when a lot of people hear that, they can feel like, what on earth could take so long? Mm. But the truth is, a lot of research has found that brain change, lasting brain change and relationship change is a two to five year process because we're not just stopping a behavior. We're looking to change the way we do life. Yeah. And so it takes time for men to, to walk through a process to understand what's driving them and how to replace that negative process with a positive one. So that's what you're going to learn. Uh, on the flip side, the group for women is called Betrayal and Beyond, which is also about an eight or nine month group where they're going to walk through issues of trust and betrayal and understanding their own triggers that have caused this to be deeply painful for them. And how uh, I always hear women say, I, I didn't know how much I would have to work on me. I thought it was yes. his problem. But it goes back to what I said earlier, that the healthier you get, the better equipped you are to engage with your spouse in this process. So uh, that's for betrayed spouses. And then for women that have addiction issues, because that is, as you said, 25 to 30 percent of women, yes. they're struggling with pornography or might be online you know, relationship kind of issues or romance novels. We have a workbook called Unraveled uh, that will take them through a similar 10 month process of healing. So these and these groups don't have to be led by pastors. They don't have to be led by counselors. They're really meant to be led by people who are in the process for themselves mm. and are finding hopefully they've got a little bit of traction. It's that idea that you want the teacher to stay a week ahead of the class if possible. So they can say, hey, I'm I don't think I'm perfect yet, but but I've I've had a couple of good months. I'm I'm making strides, but I'm in this group for me. And they really become more of a facilitator. Uh, than they are the leader. Exactly. If that makes sense. They're not there to teach the material. They're just there to keep everybody else on track because the workbooks really are the teacher. So if everybody does their work, and that's a, another thing I would say to expect, this isn't just something you show up once a week, talk about a book and go home. This is something where you take the book home with you and you've got work to do on yourself during the week. And that's what makes the group so valuable is that I come back to the group saying, Here's what I worked on this week. Here's what God showed me. Here's what I understood about my past. And as I'm engaged in that work during the week, then the group itself becomes transformational because I'm not just talking about something in the book. I'm actually talking about my life, mm. which is really the goal. So uh, these groups need to be small. Typically, they're five to seven people at most so that everybody has time to share. And they can be very self-perpetuating because typically the people that are in the group one year the next go around become the people that want to lead the next right. group. So that's the other thing I try to encourage churches to see that this doesn't have to be a staff led process. If you can just equip a few leaders and provide space for it, the groups become self-sustaining and, and self-multiplying. Mm. Uh, as, as men and women get healthy, they become your next round of leaders and it just keeps growing from there. Well, Nick, I am so thankful for your time today and just what you're doing through Pure Desire with your whole team there. Um, I mean, I know because I've been personally, you know, impacted from close friendships that this is much needed and that the work that you guys are doing truly is, you know, transforming lives and families. So thank you so much. Yeah, it, it really is a privilege to be a part of it. I mean, it's it's hard work, but on the flip side, I get to see almost every day the way God uses our stories of brokenness 
to help other people really see that there's hope and there's freedom. Because I, I think, again, that's one of the other tools of the enemy. He wants to convince people there's no hope. You can never change. Just do your best to manage it because everybody struggles. And those are lies. Those are lies that the enemy wants us to believe to keep us in shame and secrecy. Because the truth is there's hope and there's freedom. And it's, it's even better than we think it's going to be. And if I can help someone believe that and take a couple steps in the right direction, then that's what we're here for. You know, and God gets all the glory for that. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Resources, links, and quotes from today's conversation can be found at graceenoughpodcast.com under the show notes tab. If you are enjoying the show, I would like to ask you a few favors. Number one, make sure you are subscribed to the podcast. You can head over to Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and iHeartRadio. Clicking that subscribe button helps to make sure you never miss a new episode of the podcast. Number two, if you enjoy the show, would you take a moment to leave a review on iTunes? Those reviews help me to know how the show is impacting you. And number three, the best way to grow is for people like you to share it with your friends. Will you share your favorite Grace Enough podcast episode via text, email, or social media? Again, I'm so grateful for each one of you who listen week in and week out. Thank you for listening to the Grace Enough podcast. Tune in next time.